0: I admired Elisha so much that I asked myself, why am I so drawn to his story? Well, I think it's because I want to be like Elisha, and I think that I will be like him to someone else, or even perhaps to a village of people or systems of injustice. As fallen human beings, though, we struggle to see with this wholeness of sight due to our tendency to believe in our own efforts. Somehow, we think that we will know when and how to stop along our journey and help those in need along the way. Somehow, we think we can love our neighbor well when the opportunity arises. Maybe some of us are able to stop along our our journey a couple of times but how about a 100 times or over an extended period of time? I think it's hard to be like Elijah. If I was going on a pilgrimage in what could be my last days on earth, in my old age with my very best friend, I am not sure I would choose to stay alone in a village with people who are almost dying. And I'm being completely honest and vulnerable. However, every morning we wake up and are faced with the choice to engage in a journey with God's world and to participate in God's reality or to look away and only engage in our own personal reality. These choices are dependent on what we choose to pay attention to. In other words, what one sees and pays attention to, shapes one's reality and response. What we choose to see and pay attention to shapes our reality and response. To pay attention is to see what matters and what does not matter. It is to discern rightly, to choose well. Why is this important to us? Because we can only grow in wisdom towards a wholeness of sight by first paying attention to God and allowing him to shape who we are. And the interesting part of that is allowing him to shape who we are through faith in what is unseen. This is a posture that requires a death to self or human wisdom and perspective and a choice we must make every day, even every moment if we want to love our neighbor well. However, we all know that it is a very difficult thing to pay attention and to see and to discern when from the moment we wake up, we are basically bombarded with information. Author and media theorist Neil Postman made this observation. How is it possible to watch the morning news and in five minutes hear about a plane crash in India, an earthquake in Chile, a shooting somewhere in the United States, that the Cubs beat the Sox, that was my own modification by the way, (laughs) and finally an ad for Tums, and somehow take it all in. We are glutted with information, drowning in information, have no control over it and don't know what to do with it. We can't possibly pay attention to everything. Further, when you see something up close, I don't know about you, but I begin to see all the flaws. And then somehow the evil one knows how to prey on my fears and anxieties as I begin to learn more about a horrifying event or the suffering of a stranger. Oftentimes, I confess that I engage on my own terms and from my own space. But always and everywhere, this is our challenge as human beings. Author Steve Garber asks us, can we know and love the world at the very same time? Knowing its glories and shame, can we still choose to stop and love what we know? Is there any task more difficult than that? Now let's think it through from roommates to parents, siblings to friends from neighborhoods to cities from countries to cultures to continents once you begin to really know what a person or a place is like can you still love them can you still love it When we look in scripture, we read about another story. It's a story that reveals the darkness of human wisdom and perspective, but also the redeeming love and care of the God who sees. Nestled within God's originally planned and promised pilgrimage for Abram and Sarai, God does not overlook a woman named Hagar along the way. She is paid attention to and is seen so deeply that the encounter gives her life great hope and meaning. Follow along with me now as I read the story from Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian named slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, "'The Lord has kept me from having children.'" Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai took his wife, Sarai his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. So let me give a little background and context, context to this passage. The first 11 chapters of Genesis describe God's dealings with the human race. In Genesis 12, the focus shifts to an individual named Abram, and his family line. God called Abram to leave his home country of Ur and to go to Canaan, which God promised that he and his descendants would ultimately possess. God blessed Abram and promised that through his family line, a savior would be born to reconcile all humankind to God. Genesis 12, 1, two states, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that i will show you i will make you into a great nation and i will bless you i will make your name great and you will be a blessing it's interesting to note here though that soon after this promise was given abram used his own human wisdom to take matters into his own hands in verses 10 and following When he told Sarai to tell the Egyptians and Pharaoh that she was his sister, so that he would be treated well. His focus was on himself, and he could not clearly see otherwise. However, Abram also sought to be obedient to God's call, and although God periodically renewed his promise to Abram as time passed, he and his wife Sarai remained childless as they advanced in years. Now when we pick up the story in Genesis 16, it has been at least 10 years since God had first made his promise to Abram, who is now 85 years old. So what we encounter here in Genesis 16 are human beings initiated by Sarai, interpreting reality through their own human wisdom. So I want to take another look at the conversation that takes place. In verse two, Sarai says to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. In Sarai's distress, she blames God and seeks to control her promised blessing. She believed that she could help God by facilitating the process that God has already perfectly planned. And what was Abram's response? In verse 2, we see that Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Even though God had made a covenant with Abram back in Genesis 12 and declared that Abram's offspring would be given land, Abram did not know, because it was not yet revealed, through whom the covenant would be fulfilled. Then the conversation continues in verse 5 with Sarai saying to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And then in verse 6, Abram responds by saying, Your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. Here we see a lot of projection of blame and a blindness to one's own agency and responsibility and choice-making. They try to conjure up their own way of making God's promise come to fruition, which is similar to what Abram did by trying to save himself back in Genesis 12. What we also see is that this story has led to a wreck in human relationships. Abram mistreated Sarai, and Sarai mistreated Abram. They mistreated one another through blame and avoided responsibility for one's actions. We also see that the situation led to the unjust treatment of Hagar. They failed to treat Hagar as a human being made in the image of God. What we see here is that oftentimes, dependence on human wisdom can lead to the inability to clearly see God's reality as well as the Imago Dei in our fellow neighbor. And so in verse 6, we read that Sarai mistreated Hagar and Hagar fled from Sarai. As a result of being mistreated, perhaps Hagar too loses sight of who she is and who God is for her. Through our human wisdom, we begin to believe in our own rationalizations and ways of control, and we short circuit the ways and means of God. Through our human wisdom, we think we can solve the world's problems without knowing who we are in Christ and who Christ is for us. In other words, we must encounter and commune with God in order for us to be able to see others through his reality and still choose to love them. Author, educator, and activist, Parker Palmer says that, quote, we are well-educated people who have been schooled in a way of knowing that treats the world as an object to be dissected and manipulated, a way of knowing that gives us power over the world. We have succumbed to the arrogance that comes when we see what our minds can do. The outcomes of our arrogance have been less than world-shaking because our, our powers are small. In our own ways, we have used our knowledge to rearrange that world to satisfy our drive for power, distorting and deranging life, rather than loving it for the gift it is. This is so true and so very humbling. Friends, do you see yourself in our story today? Our natural tendency is to deceive ourselves about our place and purpose. And when we deceive ourselves, it is difficult to see the truth of our lives and to understand the meaning of our moment in history and our responsibility to it. But our story in Genesis 16 doesn't stop here. The story reaches its climax as we read about the encounter between God and Hagar, An encounter that reminds us that the God who sees knows us so deeply and so well that he graciously redeems our human ways of seeing and knowing and reminds us of our value and purpose in him. It's obvious that Hagar is in trying circumstances. It's probably one of the worst days of her life. She is pregnant and has run away from her mistress, Sarai. Hagar embodies her name, which means flight, so she flees. Then the God who sees us is right on time. This is the exact right time to intervene and to help. In verse 7, God saw her in the wilderness and sent himself in the form of an angel to validate the seeing of Hagar and her circumstances. God was right on time, not only for Hagar, but also for Abram and Sarai. In this very personal and intimate encounter with Hagar, God also redeems the entirety of this story. That's the kind of God we have. Not only is God right on time, but we also see that God is a God who sees us and he is very much present in Hagar's past, present, and future in his conversation with her. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Go back to your mistress and submit to her. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. God asked her her vision of where she had come from and where she was going. He redefined her circumstances the direction she was to go, and how she was to view her future and that of her son Ishmael, who was yet to be born. And at the end of her conversation, Hagar gives God a name, El Roy, the God who sees. Most theologians also believe that she is the only person in the Bible who gives God a name. Genesis 16 is the only place in the Bible that the name El Roy, the God who sees, is found. Yet the essential quality of God as all seeing is found all through scripture. However, the point of this name is not just that God always sees us or is all knowing. The point is that God sees us in our place of quiet desperation, in our misery, and that the reason he sees us is so that he can reach out to us and help us. God sees us in order that he may show us compassion, give us comfort, and work on our behalf. God seeing us is an extension of his love for us. Further, we also know that out of an extension of his love for us, that God's presence is with us. He is Emmanuel, a God who is transcendent, a total other, yet graciously chose to be imminent, a God who sees. As scripture states in Luke 1.48, when Mary sings her song, She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. The name El Roy implies much more than a God who is all-seeing and all-knowing. Hagar made the name very personal when she said, you are the God who sees me. God seeing us is much more than just his awareness of us. The name Elroy implies our value as a person, no matter who we are or what we do. It implies that God sees all hearts and the complete truth about every situation. It implies that because God sees, we are never alone. And in, it implies that in seeing, God is with us to confront comfort, protect, and deliver. The name Al-Rai specifically applies to God's seeing, hearing, knowing, understanding, and helping us in our misery. So what does this mean for all of us? So many of our neighbors need to be loved and cared for, don't they? So many systems and places are broken and need to be fixed. There's so much to see, and there are so many places to stop along our journey. Yes, we do have a responsibility to our world, but God is more interested in who we are becoming than what we do, so that what we do Can be done through the wisdom of the holy spirit's lens and guidance in his timing and not our own this means that we need to live in the light of god if we wish to see the true character of a matter psalm 36 9 states for with you is the fountain of life in your light we see light In the New Testament, we know the true character of a thing by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We see this in Acts 26.18 when Jesus tells Saul that he will, quote, open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Whenever we are confronted with a problem, I'm sure I'm the only one who does this, immediately I try to search out the answer myself. We attempt to decide what is right and what is wrong. Rather, we need to be humble, acknowledging how unreliable we are. Our judgment is undependable. Our thoughts are undependable. And our actions are undependable; we are subject to error, and we see this in first corinthians thirteen twelve where it states, "For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known, therefore." We must die to ourselves, to our pride, and to what we think we know. And we must ask God to deliver us each day so that we can live in his light and be able to know what is true in order that we can see ourselves and others through his reality and not our own it is when we come to know ourselves in Christ that we commence to know others. Only through paying attention to Jesus, who he is, and who we are in him, and asking the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts to the reality of Christ, can we grow in the art of paying attention to Christ's reality and discerning our call to engage one another and the world with a hope and justice that is pure and truly transformational. When we ask God to give us a true knowledge of him, we begin to grow in a way of seeing, which does not come from ourselves, nor from the instruction of flesh and blood, but from the revelation of the heavenly father. God says that we should dwell on the light of his face which as Paul states is so clearly seen in the face of Jesus Christ. In Christ alone is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Only by being attached to the true vine and petitioning the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts to fill us With wisdom and discernment, can we dwell in the art of paying attention and engaging one another and our world through the lens of Christ. It's only when we allow God to redeem our human ways of seeing and knowing that we can truly know and engage with others in ways that are loving and life-giving. Friends, I would like to invite you this morning to hear and see what God might be calling you to consider as we reflect upon the choices we face every day to engage with our world. Are we first paying attention to who we are in Christ and who Christ is for us? And I love that we sing, "He God is our good, good father. I mean, how relevant. God is so good um, in, in just providing that song for me this morning. With that, let's pray. I want to invite the ushers forward for a time of offering. And as the offering basket goes around, let us continue to reflect and listen for God's promptings on our hearts. So will not you pray with me? Lord, help us to let go of the desire to determine what is good for ourselves and others in our lives. Release us from the drive to stop or control what we determine is evil by our attempts to contain, run from, or hide the fallen tendencies of ourselves and others. Instead, Lord, help us to line up with the cross and receive your vision, of ourselves and your vision for others. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to live this out in the freedom that Christ bought for all of us. Let our motivation be united with your heart, dear Father. That vision that was given to us at Calvary as Christ's love was fully displayed on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray.